Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Whether it was with her old band Sharelift, her solo music as Ramona Lisa and CEP, or the Beyonce collaboration No Angel that she co-wrote and co-produced, Caroline Polachek's distinctive musical voice has always bewitched me. It's a voice informed by goth, R&B, folk, new metal, classical music, and a deep childhood love of Disney music, as you'll learn in the interview ahead in episode 36 of LSQ. Hi, I'm Jenny Ellisque. Thanks for pressing play. In addition to this new interview with Caroline, I've also included a pretty lengthy archive clip from 2001 with the late, great Scott Weiland. Um, That's in honor of the fact that it was just recently Scott's birthday, or do they call it birth anniversary when the person has already passed? File under depressingquestions.com. Anyway, I'll tell you more about the interview with Scott when we get to it. And first, some quick background on the occasion surrounding this conversation with Caroline. She visited me here in Brooklyn earlier this fall in the weeks leading up to the release of a solo album called Pang that is excellent, by the way. And significantly, it's the first album she's ever released simply under her own name. All right, let's get it started. Uh, We were just saying before I turned on the microphones the last time we had sort of a running encounter backstage at a Lollapalooza. And yeah, I guess I, I sort of didn't know where in the world you had been traveling to since then, but you were just saying these days you're kind of starting to reside in L.A. and, and settle on that side of the country. Yeah, I've been, um, I've been bumping around mostly between London and L.A. for the past two years and finally just decided to move my rent checks from New York to L.A. Um, do you think that, it, that there's something about a location that makes you inspired do you feel yeah. it, like it's it's distilled through a place when you're being creative yeah it's so mysterious and it's so many different factors as well like um you know i think the most obvious example that for me was working on um a solo project i did in 2014 called ramona lisa i mm-hmm. i um spent a few weeks in rome doing a residency in a castle in rome and that project kind of came directly out of the experience of being in that place but this was so different i mean you know, so many major cities have so much crossover now just because so many people you know are traveling and coming in and out. Um, 
and your phones make it so easy to get around. You don't really have that experience, that like, kind of othered experience in cities the way maybe you did like 10 years ago. But um, no, but London was kind of the right cocktail for me of um, like the scene there being really inspiring and also just the setting. Like I'm a romantic and uh, at heart I'm a goth and being around all that old 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 building, old, old buildings, the old yeah. stories, the old... Um, you know, even the, the cemeteries there. Right, because so... when you're, I mean, when you're writing, is there there's always a window, right? Is there usually a window in the room you're writing in? I mean, well, the it... window's metaphysical, isn't the... it? Like, you, right. you, <laughs> it gets it comes there are many in windows. Yes, <laughs> but I would imagine that just look, at, you know, even just for for I think what any anyone can relate to, looking up from your desk wherever it may be and whatever your eyes rest upon. You know, it's like you have to think about what your eyes rest on when you're creating. Kind it's of. the commute, too. Like, whenever you're switching off, like, before or after working, where are you? Who's around you? Yeah. What are you thinking about? And one of the, the amazing things about London is really the contrast. You know, I mentioned how there's so much, I mean, at least by American standards, ancient, ancient stuff around. Yeah. But also, I feel like in a lot of ways, it's more forward-thinking in terms of technology than America is like being over there uh, and I guess I'm saying this about the UK and Europe in general but like you know being in a place that's kind of so quick to embrace sustainable energy for example um, their subway system is a lot sleeker and more high-tech than ours and yeah um, and I also feel like the electronic music scene has a whole different legacy there than we do here like especially in New York I feel like there's so much um, fetishism of older things like even of the history of hip-hop or the history of sampling and mm -hmm. the history of house music whereas in London I feel like everyone is so interested in like technology and new sounds and they have been that's just built into the yeah, culture there. I know it's now that you say it, it is all you know in so many places around the world outside of here that have more history than this country has that are more embracing of uh, technology-driven music, you yeah, know, in in Germany and Russia and all these places where, like, yeah, electronic music is just ma a, like massive pop phenomenon. It, that yeah. is interesting. I wonder if in America we're we're young enough still that we're so attached to our we're, we fetish we've fetishized our creations, we fetishized our rock and roll and our Hollywood, you know. Oh yeah, and they fetishize it too. I mean, we're not alone in that, but yeah. Um, I mean, that's good stuff. Rock and roll in Hollywood, good, good stuff. <laughs> I mean, everything we're talking about is good. I guess in some ways maybe being around older things makes you feel newer. Yeah, yeah. And I got, I got quite inspired by that, by that headspace. So um, I, just to, just to give you a roadmap of our conversation here, because sometimes I'm talking to an artist who doesn't have like an important new thing about to come out, and you do, and I want to talk about it because I've been listening to it and I love it. And it's exciting. It's the first Caroline Polachek album, like, you know, yay, what have you been waiting for, et cetera. I'm curious to know all of these things. But also this, the thing I do on the show, this show is really try and talk to people as well about like the early, their earliest inclinations toward music. Um, so uh, I want to start with that, which is just what do you remember about feeling, you know, feeling musical as a kid or the moments when you first felt you know, or in a larger sense, creative? I think Disney was a massive entry point for me. Um, you know, kids don't really go to concerts. Like, yes, we had music classes in school, but um, 
I, I grew up watching movies. We didn't have TV at, at my house growing up. And um, my sister and I would watch Disney films on repeat, like over and over and over again, the way a lot of kids do. And I started figuring out how to pick the songs out on the piano. And a lot of these Disney songs have pretty complicated kind of jazzy chord changes in some of them, or like kind of quite classical chord changes. But I didn't really give it much thought. And, um, and I was given a keyboard, like an electronic, uh, electric keyboard, a Yamaha PSR, when I was seven years old. Um, in part because my dad is a classical musician and he was also very kind of irritated by sound and by music that he didn't like. And so I was given a keyboard so that I that had a volume knob so that I could be turned down and play quietly so my mm. dad didn't have to hear me. And, um, and I realized that this keyboard had a plus, on, a plus button on it and a minus button on it. And if I hit the plus button on it, the notes would change that came out. And I didn't really understand exactly what I was doing at the time, but what I was doing was transposing. So I could, I could kind of figure out how to play the song in one key, and then I could hit, you know, hit the plus or minus button until it lined up with what was happening in the, in the Disney film and could play along. So I learned how to rip in the key of C. Wow. And could just transpose the keyboard to sync it up to the real Key. What an, I mean, is that a standard keyboard feature? That's Yes, actually. And not just keyboards, but all synths you can essentially transpose with. So as like a seven-year-old, um, I really learned intervals. I learned melodies. I kind of started understanding right. chord relationships. But in this way where I wasn't really thinking about it, it just happened really organically. Right. But Disney films were a huge point of entry. And where was this? Where did you grow up? Um, I lived in Tokyo till I was six. And then I lived in Connecticut until uh, I was 17. And so the not having TV, but having a TV on which you could watch Disney movies, I mean, was that sort of a, uh, a parenting choice or just sort of a uh, circumstances? Oh, it was a very active parenting choice. Like I go to friends' houses on play dates and I would just like glue myself to the TV screen. Because your parents felt that to exercise some control of what you might watch on the, on the box, at least, yeah. you would narrow it down to things yeah. they approved of. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways, I'm really grateful because uh, the the films my mom got me were amazing. Um, we were given like ballets and operas to watch as well, and I'd invite friends over and be like, "Look, do you want to watch Sleeping Beauty?" And then I put on the Sleeping Beauty ballet, and my friends were like, "This is not Sleeping Beauty." <laughs> and I was like, "No, but it's great." Wow. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, I think I think like I did have ADD as a kid, but I think having a restricted kind of media that I could interact with actually made me focus on it in a way that I would not have focused on it if given like hundreds of options. Um, Limitations are fascinating. They are, but at the same time, I missed out on a lot of cultural touchstones that a lot of other kids So yeah, about. would you, I mean, cause you're of the age when like prime MTV. Nickelodeon. Era, um, were, so did you, did you develop a kind of, urge to dig into it I mean did you would you when you would go to friends houses be like show me some MTV like yeah. kids whose parents don't give them any sugar and then they go to a friend's house and they're like eating all the chocolate by the time I was 14 15 I definitely found ways to get MTV into my life right I remember watching like um the dope show Marilyn Manson music video and just being like completely amazed by that oh yeah yeah that's got some Disney qualities to it yeah and then twisted Disney it's Disney <laughs> And then seeing the Bjork, Chris Cunningham videos as well, like Nine Inch Nails videos. Oh, yeah. Terrifying slash awesome. It was just amazing. I felt like I'd been waiting my whole life to find stuff like that. 
So the music you were hearing was just through these, I mean, did you have, were you listening to pop music on the radio at the same time, or did you have, did your parents have a, a music collection for you as well? Um, yeah, I listened to radio. I had a tiny radio that I could, could listen to in my room. Um, and I started buying CDs at about the age of 10. Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill was my first album. Good choice. I just found out it's one of the top 10 best-selling records of all it, time, it is. which is yeah, shocking. Like, yeah, and like some Bob Marley, Eagles, no, Michael Eagles, Jackson category. Eagles have number one and number three. <sighs> Mind blown. One is a Greatest Hits and one is and the Hotel three California is, Exactly. No, one is Greatest Hits and three is Hotel California. Yeah. Yeah. So wild. That is insane. Yeah. But it that goes back to the sort of like, wow, once we decide what our favorite thing is, America, mm-hmm. we really like the eagles. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is our national bird after all. I guess that's, totally. the eagles are like, when we were picking our name, we never factored in the just pa- innate patriotism. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I want to go back to the keyboard uh, for a minute. Your dad gave it to you so you wouldn't be playing piano loudly, potentially. But mm-hmm. did you, at, were you already the idea of, I want to try and play music, or were you asking for after it? or Yeah. Did you just figure, like, oh, here's a toy, I may as well explore it? No, I was so drawn to it um, and drawn to the piano. And again, in a way that felt like really... Uh, very natural. I, I when did the idea of, of figuring out how to play these songs from from the Disney films and such like uh, begin to translate into writing your own songs? Was it a pretty immediate curiosity? It was pretty immediate. I think, like I said, I was I was pretty ADD as a kid and didn't actually finish compositions until I was about fourteen. Finish songs. Um, I mostly just learned how to play other things up until that age. Yeah. And what were you, what, what inspired you at that point to try and write? I think it was this idea, which, you know, was so saturated in the 90s of kind of singer, songwriter, acoustic, um, guitar and vocal music. So I, I learned the basics of acoustic guitar and started doing like school talent show um, style competitions with songs I'd written. Right. Like kind of folk songs. Yeah. Um, which I then immediately abandoned uh, and started singing in new metal bands after that. Oh. But that, but that phase <laughs> right prior to that was when I started writing my own songs. I, new metal. So, because you, you just don't hear any female-fronted new metal in the, in the annals of new metal. I've never been exposed to that. I feel like we're living in a time when new metal has, is being rescued from its bad reputation that it had at the time where it's like, you know, I see kids now that like stand for Limp Biscuit, and I have to be like, let's just take a moment here to ask ourselves, do we really need to say that all things that are uh, guilty pleasure are good? Or they're not all the good. Some guilty pleasure things are still kind of crap, but you like it anyway. Um, not to do, I mean, and I love Fred Durst and Wes Borland, I think are awesome dudes and awesome artists, but. Um, but I digress. But new metal, you were you were into it. You're you're like young enough that that could have been a true passion. Oh I'm yeah, I was in <laughs> I was in two bands. I don't even dare tell you the names of them in case recordings ever surface. But yeah, um, you were a singer. I was a singer, and I wrote the songs with the other guys in the band. Um, I in, had in like the vein of like Disturbed and like that kind of thing. I think. Wow. I mean, for me, it was like a kind. Of, I I saw my role as kind of an evanescence. Oh yeah, thing. Right. Um, 
but it was riffy. It was like very guitar riffy. Um, there were kind of some mathy elements in the drumming. Um, and we would play, um, we'd mostly rehearse in garages. Um, we'd play friends' barbecues, that yeah. kind of thing. We'd once in a while play at the local teen center, which was a big deal. Did it feel important to you at that age, what you were doing, that that was like one of the ways you identified yourself in the world as like a kid who played music? Absolutely. And that was also kind of a weird thing for me as a girl because there weren't any other girls at my school that listened to harder music. There were like girls in the drama department and who I sang with in choir who I really liked, but I didn't really feel as if I had any um, girls that I could kind of share that with. Yeah. So I mostly hung out with guys for the last two years of high school, um, which I wish, I mean, they were great guys, but I just wish that, uh, yeah, it took, it took me a few years after that to kind of feel like at home amongst groups of girls and women again, because I think I had kind of gotten into this headspace where like, well, this is it. If you're going to be like, you know, musician playing in bands, you've got to get used to being around all guys all the time. And maybe yeah. in some ways that was true. Um, well, it was true for then, at least. It was true for then. And there were a couple moments in Chairlift when we had essentially an all-male, besides me, touring party. But we also had some almost all-female moments as well. So. Yeah. And, and, I mean, especially as a kid, you adapt to your tribe and, and you behave the way they behave to, yeah. you know, as like a approval vortex or something. Yeah. And, um, and you can't really see what's happening until you're out of it. And you're like, wow, I really acted like those people while I was hanging out with those people. 100%. Um, but... In terms of being an outlet for emotional expression or whatever, like was was it was it already at that point becoming, um, yeah, a thing you felt like you you needed to do? Absolutely, I was I was completely addicted to it, and even more than expression, I felt like it was a kind of identity, like you know, being in that band, being that girl at school, it gave me a kind of sense of comfort in my identity, like okay, I'm that, that's what I am. Yeah. Um, but I also shouldn't simplify it too much either. I was in seven musical ensembles while I was in my senior year of high school. So in those two bands. But I also started an acapella group called The Accidentals, which was me and six other girls. Oh, my God, great name. It's terrible. There was a, there was a boys' <laughs> acapella band that I was very jealous of. And I was like, why don't we have a women's one? But um, we would cover pop songs. And that, in a way, was even a more formative musical education for me than playing in the band. So like what were the songs of the day? What would have been in your repertoire at that time? Um, we were doing Enya. We were doing like um, Brandy and Monica, The Boy's Mine. Wow. Uh, we did Dave Matthews Band. Yeah, you did. And um, I was essentially acting as the musical director and picking the songs and arranging them. I want to recordings them. of this. You know, I wonder if we feel like, ever recorded. I feel like this needs to, you feel like you need to sample some of that stuff, right? Oh my God, that'd be amazing. That's so... We actually made money. We'd play like benefits and stuff. And I mean, bring back birthdays. the accidentals, Carolyn. <laughs> <laughs> I know some ladies who'd probably be down. You live in LA, I can introduce you acapella pop songs. I mean, I love acapella music. <laughs> not gonna, not gonna lie. Um, but that that was amazing because I had to learn like how bass lines were written and how drum parts work, and would have to like hold those parts in my own body to write the lines, and also hold them in my own head, like with kind of remembering what the bass line's doing, what is the alto part doing? And I would write them in the most kind of chicken scratch way, not even in notation, just write out the letters. Like I'd write an A or a C, and then I'd teach each girl their part just by ear. And figure out how to emulate the sound something other than just, yeah, with yeah. what noise to make, really. I'd always get stuck beatboxing because I was the only one who could kind of do it, um, even though I really wanted to take the solo parts, but... 
um, but that, you know, that was the sacrifice. But, but yeah, that was a, an amazing education in terms of, you know, what's a, how does a bridge work? How does a pre-chorus work? Yeah. Enya is an interesting thing in the mix with those other, which, not that Enya didn't have a couple of moments of a song that was like kind of a, of a single, but um, I'm intrigued. And I've noticed with, you know, that, that artists um, of your generation in particular have like, no, have have paid more attention to Enya as a great artist of her era than like people my age sort of missed it and were just like, oh, it's very new age. Or Barnes whatever. and Noble. Barnes and Noble, but like the true devotion that you know younger artists have to Enya, I I, I really appreciate. Um, but it's interesting to hear you name her in the mix of some of that other stuff because it highlights the way in which the things you like seem to be connected to each other or. Uh, filtered through, you know, those are some of the things that I feel like your music de- definitely sounds, uh, yeah, like... Related to? Yeah, related to uh, the sort of goth R&B acapella. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Acapella goth R&B. I-, I guess I am thinking about you sitting as a little kid with the keyboard and trying to figure out how to do Disney songs and then whatever, and then you in London trying to write songs nowadays and and how much it feels to you like it's still kind of a process of striving toward the same sound that you hear you know how much of it feels kind of when you're really focused on it and like in your flow or whatever like you're it's the same thing as when you first started to try and figure out songs it's always felt new and it still feels new um the things that feel familiar are kind of the technical things, mm. um, like the problem-solving aspects. Um, I've got a lot more of a kind of mental arsenal for than I used to, obviously, but it always feels, yeah, the process of writing has always felt fresh and always felt new. And, and like, you know, you, you said this thing about um, always striving towards the same thing. I feel like I've always kind of had a kind of abstract ideal that I'm striving for and I'm writing, but it's a moving target. It keeps changing from one album to another, even from one month to another. Mm. Um, and very often that's based on something I'll hear that I'm like, this is amazing. And it will actually reroute me. Wow. In a way that you're aware of where you're just like, hold the phone, yep. factor this in now. A hundred percent. So what would be an example of some of something th- throughout your creative journey that you just came to an intersection and it hit you and you were like, well, we got to take this turn now. Well, there's a Japanese band called Dip in the Pool. They were working in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. And they did something really funny and kind of sabotage but they only released their albums on laser discs with like, essentially as visual albums. Wow. Which is really normal discs. now. But in the 90s, that was a pretty wild, wild move. But anyway, their music has just kind of had a repopularization because it's all ended up on YouTube. And um, I've been listening to their music and I towards the beginning of working on this record I was listening to a song of theirs and I realized there's something so pristine and yet like human about um, about a song of theirs which is called Rabo del Sol and I kind of just said you know what I think this next chapter of what I'm going to do needs to be dedicated towards something that's that reduced that's that perfect it's like looking at a flower or something it's like Mm. pristine and beautiful and perfect but completely organic um and of course i rerouted multiple times between that point and now but that was a moment of total clarity actually it was it was 
hearing that song and not thinking that I wanted to imitate anything sonic about that song, but aspiring towards making something that would make me feel the way that song made me feel. Wow. Have you ever read the uh, book, the Susan Orlean book, Adaptation? No. No, The Orchid Thief, actually, sorry, is the book. Adaptation is the movie based on the book. Um it's about, it's it's crazy the i also recommend the movie adaptation because it's so meta about the concept of adapting things the book is based on an article that susan orlean wrote for the new yorker where she followed this orchid um like specialist who's obsessed with like this one specific variety of orchid that's like elusive but you learn you know there's just orchids are fascinating you know, it's like a world where it's just like so specific, but so vast. And she she writes about this this character who is obsessed with orchids. And it's a lens through which, you know, she's able to examine sort of what's important to her. And like, what's the one thing that you care, you know, like care about that much. Um, and it's really great. It's just reminded me of the hunt of uh yeah exactly the uh, the looking for something to be to focus on that you're like this is the perfect encapsulation of uh the orchid thief is what it's called so let's talk a bit about making this caroline polachek album of the official caroline polachek album because for listeners who might not be familiar you know who, who may know you from chairlift but n- not have been aware of the releases that you've done on your own there was the ramona lisa thing and then a couple of years ago, uh, a collection just under your initial CEP, which is a, it was a different sounding, more experimental musically. I get why that was not like the solo debut or whatever. But talk to me for a bit about why you decided to do the Ramona Lisa thing and not was there reservations at that time about just putting it out under your name? Already people knew knew your name. Oh, there wasn't a second thought in my mind. I, I really approached that song almost the way a director would approach a short film. Um, was It felt very contained, like a kind of capsule, mm-hmm. and with a very clear start and end. Um, and it didn't feel like me, although there are kind of you know, narrative strains and lyrics that do come from my life. It was more like um, just a zone that I wanted to... Mm-hmm to kind of dwell in and bottle up for people and then move on from it wasn't it wasn't meant to be part of chairlift or part of a longer trajectory and honestly that was really liberating because at that point I'd already been in a band for a decade yeah and uh there'd been so much mutation from one album to the other with chairlift and also like Patrick and I are both textbook Gemini's where we both have such eclectic taste and um, really liked making music that was wildly different from one song to another. So to have a side project that was going to be so um, clearly defined by a certain palette and by a certain time frame was really uh, was really liberating. Yeah. So that was yeah that was a that was a project that was dedicated to the idea of like pastorals, like a pastoral painting, pastoral themes, pastoral music. Right. But making it with MIDI instruments that were imitating live ones in a very crude way. So I kind of saw the whole project in these very like flat hieroglyphic kind of paper doll terms where things were like, you know, kind of like shadow puppets, kind of virtual storytelling in a so very how crude much of way. It, how much of that kind of thing, looking back now, or with any album you've made, um, is you going into it with a sort of articulated set of ideas or a you know, cut, you know, mental mood board about what you think you're going to try and do or have it sound like 
versus it just becoming what it's going to be while while you're in there and and with this new album specifically like how much did you go into it with an idea for for what you wanted it to be I went into this with a much more ambitious sense of what I wanted to be, which was essentially knowing that this was going to be the next large trajectory that I dedicate myself to as a musician, which was really intimidating because I was like, you know, there's so many different sounds I'm interested in. Does this need to encapsulate all of them? Maybe, maybe not. But the main thing for me was I wanted it to really be about my voice because I think that's the instrument that I have the most fluidity with and that you know, kind of defines me as a musician the most. And um, I really approached the record as being really about singing, which I'd never actively done before. Um, and it felt way more undefined what the rest of it would be. So there was a lot more exploration. Right. Also, you know, every project, including the solo projects, I'd, I'd had a, a huge amount of kind of helpful limitations on. Like even with Chairlift, I knew that I was going to be working with a bandmate the whole time. Um, and usually there was a kind of space that we were rooted to just for, you know, logistical reasons, like whether it was our rehearsal space, our writing space, or one recording studio. There was some kind of anchor, whereas for the first time in my life, there was no sense of anchor at all, like either in terms of location or in terms of collaborators. Like, I've always been the girl that people could call up to be guests on their music. And suddenly I was like, wait a minute, I can be the one who picks up the phone now. Right. It felt a lot about um, experimenting. Right. Like just trying things and seeing what worked. Right. And sometimes the, th the things that I thought would work the best just didn't work at all. And the things that I didn't have as much kind of optimism about ended up being the best. So I just, I got surprised at so many turns. Right. So what, what felt sort of like kind of some of the breakthrough moments or what were the, what, what were the tracks that felt like really were you were starting to see this thing taking shape? Well, the biggest breakthrough moment was probably October of 2016, which is ages ago now. It's crazy. Um, Chairlift was still touring, but I, we had a, a month break in the fall. And I went to L.A. to begin writing for what I knew would be my solo record, even though I didn't have a contract or anything for it in place yet. I knew that that's what I was going to do next. Mm -hmm. Patrick and I had actually already had the conversation about Chairlift breaking up. And um, I went to LA to do a combination of top line writing for other artists and like begin writing for myself. And while I was there, I had a top line writing session booked with Danielle Hall, who had I previ who had previously done um, a single with. And the night before our session, I had taken a bunch of mushrooms with a friend on the beach. And while tripping, I had the realization that I shouldn't be doing top lining. I, I, it was one of those cosmic um, time is limited moments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I canceled all my top lining sessions for the week while on the beach, including the one with Daniel Harl. And he wrote me back and said, well, we don't have to do top lining for anyone else. You should just, we should just write for you. So the next day we met up and, and we had like a four hour session and we wrote a piece of music that neither one of us kind of saw coming. Um, it's a song called Parachute. Um, and uh, it, the, it was wildly unstructured compared to anything you know, he and I had ever put out before. And extremely expressionistic and so limited in palette, no drums. The key changes like four or five times. And it feels like, it felt like a really pure kind of storytelling. Like the arc of the, the story and the music just follow each other in this really exact um, parallel. 
and we were both kind of so moved by it that we said we started immediately scheduling more sessions to work together and up until that point the record had kind of been a folk album in some ways but kind of an electronic folk album and once that song was in the folder I essentially imagined I was starting from zero from that point wow I mean, how much music do you tend to have uh, kind of like on a hard drive, in progress, um, are you a, more of a sort of proliferation kind of creator, or are you more sort of focus, finish, like use, put it out? It, it actually depends on what stage I'm at. This was definitely a proliferate and then filter process. Mm-hmm. Um, there are about 70 songs in the mix for this wow. album. And then towards the end, I started cutting down. And um, at one point, I thought this was going to be an 18-song record, and then I thought it was going to be a 10-song record, and of course, landed on 14. Right. It's not. It's it's not. It's got. It's nice and long. You know, it feels like a, a lot of music. I mean, a lot of compelling track. It has a lot of compelling tracks on it. Well, thanks. Um, talk to me a bit about this sort of process of doing, you know, songwriting sessions for listeners who aren't familiar. Top lining is the. That's the. That's yes. the melody. That's the that's the song of the song, and you know. Then there's the track, of course, as well. Um, but there are a lot of uh, recording artists who also do this kind of work in various combinations and ver- in myriad studios around the world, um, just writing for prospective recordings that may or may not ever happen. Of course, in your case, you landed a really big one with Beyonce's No Angel, and I'm just curious sort of what you feel like has been the most useful to you, what you've learned the most or appreciated the most about having those experiences as you went into this process, like, that changed the person you are, the artist you are, going into making this new album. I guess it's, if anything, it's given me a kind of almost religious trust in... um, and kind of like ideas appearing out of nowhere because so often when I'm going to a session I'll kind of, I'll get kind of anxious and feel like I haven't prepared anything and let's be honest like no one wants a writer to arrive in the room and be like all right I've got this prepared um that's no fun but at the same time it's 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 also the biggest thrill when you leave after particularly a short session like a three or four hour one and you can leave and just be like bam <laughs> There it is. There's a song that didn't exist and no inkling of the song even existed. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, it is weird. Do you find that there's any consistent qualities that collaborators you like have? Or what what do you think brings out the best in, in you from a collaborator? I feel really lucky to like continually find myself in rooms with people who are so shockingly positive and open minded. Um, like I think Sebastian Tellier was the first person that I ever had this kind of reaction to because he and I wrote a song in, I want to say like 2009 or 2010, the duet. And I was just, at the time I was like, you know, maybe like at my most kind of like picky and defensive I've ever been as an artist, and which thankfully I've grown out of. But remember he just said yes to every single idea that anyone around had. And it somehow became good because he would say he'd say yes to ideas that I was like, I don't think that's a great lyric or I don't think that's a very good drum line. But he would just say, yes, it's great. It's perfect. And then <laughs> and then it would become great and perfect. And he did this with thing after thing after thing, even with the music video that I think his kind of trust and positivity 
like in this very cosmic way would bring out the best of everyone who's around him. And I've since found myself in a room with a lot of people who work that way, like where in a lot of ways, a big curatorial act is just who they even, what opportunities they'll even say yes to and be in the room with them. And once they're in the room, it's a lot of yes. Um, like Charlie XCX is another one who just blows my mind and works that way. She works so fast. She's such an amazing writer. Mm. And, um, and she's just like the most, one of the most positive, open-minded collaborators ever. Like just saying, just saying, yes, 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 next. Yes, 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 next. And not in a way where the integrity of what she's doing is compromised. It's just like, yeah, I kind of aspire to be at that level of yes at some point. Right. It's right. It's it's uh, it's encouragement, but not false encouragement or something. Oh, there's no false encouragement about it. And I think what it comes down to in a lot of cases is is um, having very few preconceived notions or like dialed in expectations. So you really are approaching things open ended. And so what you receive, you focus on it, you're interested in it and you allow it to progress rather than being like, well, it's not the thing I was hoping it would be. Right. Can we make it more like the thing I was imagining? Yeah. What's the next song that's going to be... Is there another song that's going to be shared in advance of mm-hmm. the album? Yeah, there are three more, if not four. Um, one's coming out, or Para coming out later this month, called Ocean of Tears and Parachute. Parachute was the one I told you about that kind of started the direction for the whole album. Yeah. Definitely got a Sade vibe from uh, a lot of it in a way that is just so... Wonderful. That makes me really happy to hear because I grew up listening to a lot of Sade and she's been so influential for so much of my generation. But I have to say, I don't feel like I've ever been directly influenced by Sade and I've never really attempted to, to pull anything from that music. But the reason I really appreciate people making that comparison is because the thing I love so much about Sade is you're really invited to just dwell in that music, to just like live in it. Mm-hmm. And it's not really so much about setting up these big drops and these big punchy lyrics. It's really like she sets up this environment that you are just in. Yeah. And it's like windows down, lean back, you're in it. Yeah. And that was a big thing of what I was trying to go for with Door, except, um, funny enough, I mean, I guess it's kind of related. The song that kind of inspired Door more than anything was the Chic version, the Chic, um, Nile Rogers' project version of At Last I Am Free, the Robert Wyatt song okay and the thing that i love so much about that music is it's got this chorus that you can't tell if it's deeply tragic or a complete revelation the chorus is at last i am free i can hardly see in front of me i can hardly see in front of me at last i'm free i can hardly see in front of me wow and it it's just chilling and so beautiful because you can't tell if this is like an end of life experience or you're just blinded by ecstasy. Right. And it's almost just this idea of like transcendence, I guess, in that way. Yeah. And I didn't approach the lyric writing of door as a, as a kind of homage in any way. It was just a vision, an image that came to me and Mm -hmm. just was very direct, but, but I really aspired towards what that song does musically, which is it sets up this really hypnotic, warm, groove heavy environment that's also deeply psychedelic mm. and not trying to be psych with a capital p the songs that are coming up next are the opposite they're much more about like these lean 
kind of pointed melodic experiences rather than the bowl, which Door kind of was. Right, but, right. Um, but the album definitely fleshes out the space in between the two. You must be stoked for it to be uh, like almost coming out finally. Like, I'm so excited. Like the, I've, I've been waiting for this for years. <laughs> it really seems like people get it and kind of are feeling what I wanted them to feel. So that's, that's the reward. Um, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up. Thanks so much. This is great. Caroline's album, Pang, is out now. Go get it. And coming up next, oh man, I'll tell you, it was difficult and and sad listening back to the audio from this interview you're about to hear with Scott Weiland. Um, I had the pleasure of interviewing him on the phone several times between 2001 and 2007 on assignment for Rolling Stone. And for context, the conversation you're about to hear was from summer of 2001, as Stone Temple Pilots were leading up to their album Shangri-La Da. Also, Wyland was sober for the time being, and a new dad having welcomed the birth of a baby boy the previous year. In this excerpt, we talk about so much stuff. I mean, this is about half of what we recorded at the time, but we talk about sobriety. He was recently diagnosed bipolar, and, and that's something we discuss. We talk about Stone Temple Pilots' place in rock history and his love of the Flaming Lips album The Soft Bulletin. It's fascinating, and it's sad, but I hope you'll listen to the whole thing. So let's get into it. Do you feel do you feel now like like almost a completely different person? Well, yeah, in so many ways, but you know what? It's so weird because... Um... You know, as soon as I start feeling like I, like I, like I, I uh, well, I mean, I am a different person, but as soon as I start feeling like, you know, that uh, I, I've, I've finally made it out of the darkness or something, uh, then, then, you know, something happens or a few things happen that, and, and it seems like I get swallowed up by it again and, and everything just seems, you know, I don't know, um, just just dark and bleak and all that. And, and it's a, I hate feeling that way, you know, because I, I kind of felt like, that once I stopped living the life that I lived, you know, that, that I wouldn't necessarily need to, you know, I wouldn't necessarily need to um, be in that place very often. And, and you know, sometimes it it still happens. And, uh, and you know, it's it's frustrating because, uh, you know, I mean, the obvious thing that, it, that I felt was what kept me there for a long time, um, trapped in it, you know, is, is gone really, and, and yet it still kind of happens. I mean, overall, though, I mean, really, I mean, it is completely different. I mean, I am different. I'm forced to be different. I enjoy being different, and I'm trying to be even more so. Are there any things about the old Scott Weiland that you miss? Yeah, I guess, um, you know what, I guess the thing that that at times that I I do this is like, uh, you know, there are times when I feel like I would like just to be incredibly irresponsible and just to say, fuck it, you know, like for a day or for a week or something, but... You know that's just not a reality, you know, and and uh, and I could do that, you know, and and I would pay a price for it, you know, if even for a couple days, you know, it's like, you know, I pay a price mentally, emotionally, you know, whatever that whole thing, I would pay a price for, it. and uh, you know that kind of random um, carelessness, right? But it, at times, you know what, it's like that. There's, it seems like there's nothing that I would like more than that. You know, it's just sort of, you know, the freedom to just be able to say, you know what. Like, I want to check out for a day, you know, but, you know, it's just not a reality for me. And I wish it, I kind of wish it was at times, you know, I mean, 
I, I see it's a reality for a lot of my friends, like, uh, you know, guys in my band, like Dean. I mean, Dean is a, Dean, you know, can take narcotic vacations mm-hmm. and, uh, and, you know, and binge on them right. for a few days. What would you like, honey? What would you like? You want me to give you your binky? Um, we talked a bit last time about about whether uh, SDP have been sort of perennial underdogs and uh, and your feelings about that. But do you, do you think you reach a certain point in your career where you cease to even notice that sort of thing? Well, at times, at times it's like I really feel unaffected by 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 all that. You know, I feel unaffected by what's going on in the you know uh, you know the pop community or even the rock community around me. And, and there's also there's this almost a sense of uh, uh, you know, in a sense, in, in a way, it's kind of you know feeling above all at all, you know, above it all, mm-hmm. and sort of unaffected by it and that. But there are times that you know, um, there are times when it, when you know when when I'm when I'm deep in the trenches of of being involved in the business side of it, mm-hmm. like you know, as kind of like as we are now, when when it's not so much about the the creation and the inspiration, the art, uh, you know, or even the that the moment, the the performance of it, it's about talking about all that and about trying to get together with management and try to come up with ideas that are going to best maximize the potential of a record. Right. And and when I'm forced with like realities of like what goes, what is going on around, and what might affect, you know, the success uh, of the record, then all of a sudden I get drawn back into that, you know, <laughs> and and I hate that because I don't like to be driven by by. Uh, by, by those types of things, you know what I mean? And, you know, I really feel like I've gotten to a point, you know, as a songwriter, and I feel like the band has gotten to a point as a band, and, you know, especially myself and Robert and Dean, the songwriters, where, you know, we really are making records and writing songs for, for ourselves, and uh, at least we're completely on the path of that now, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't really know where we're going to be on the next album or the one after that, you know, and, and I'm sure we'll be even further along in that direction, but uh, you know, there's that that's a very liberating feeling, but it's also kind of a frightening feeling because, you know what, I mean, you know, since we're in sort of a maelstrom of, of uh, self-promotion right now and, and, you know, affected by, like, noticing, like, you know, what other groups are doing the same sort of things and, you know, what slew of current bands uh you know were were um performing with uh at some of these festivals and that you know you can't help but notice you know what's happening on the you know the commercial side of things and and i don't know it's just a huge distraction but really ultimately i think that um you know you get to a certain place and and uh you know i mean we were so fortunate on our first three albums to have just had like uh, you know, uh, just uh, an unnatural amount of success, you know, and so being able to, you know, still be thought of as like a, a valid band that matters now, even more so now than we did when we actually had that kind of success, right. is, 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 is a great sort of achievement because, mm-hmm. you know, we may never get back to the point where we're selling seven, six million records every, every, every album. But where we are at now is we've like we've grabbed a hold of like a place that 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 you know we where we will be you know until we decide to quit and you know make records kind of the way we want to without um, you know feeling t- uh, you know pressured by the label too much and and uh, and you know we now are with a management company that actually want to see us they encourage us to grow musically and and 
not feel trapped by being that you know the uh, the you know the heavy dark band that we you know sort of were when we first started. Right. You know, and they kind of uh, encourage us to embrace the changes that we've been kind of going through musically. Um, and so that's a nice thing, you know. Right. But I mean, then again, you know, there I'm also a human being, and uh, I'm very competitive. Uh, and uh, you know, um, it's to tell you the truth, it, it at times is very frustrating to see bands that um, are basically aping what we did uh, on our first two records, mm-hmm. and uh, and are, are you know commercially having uh, a bigger impact with uh, you know the uh, tattooed nation. <laughs> Who are we talking about here? Oh, you know, I mean, it's endless, really, the list. I mean, but you know what? And some of those bands, I actually am supportive of, and and I I appreciate where they have borrowed. Right. And I think they're they're definitely standing on their own because I mean, God knows, I mean, you know, we borrow, beg, and steal all the time. Uh, but uh, but you know, there are some too that I kind of you know I, I feel like they, they sort of um, just the plagiarization is is just nothing but sort of like make me almost like uh, not want to play those old songs anymore. Do, do you ever feel like, well, gee, the zeitgeist or whatever is changing, and and if if what's contemporary and and popular isn't in line with what we're doing, we just have to, you know, ignore it and plow onward and do what we do? Well, I think that's what you have to do. I mean, because you know what, the, the lasting artists that have sort of grown, uh, you know, uh, gracefully and have had ups and downs through their, their growth, you know, ha- have kind of, you know, at times maybe borrow a little bit from, from, from you know, n- new exciting movements that happen, because there are exciting things that happen sometimes. Right. You know, every, you know, once or maybe sometimes twice a decade, there are some exciting things that happen. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, it's good to borrow from those things. I mean, I think Bowie's done that. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, he doesn't consistently make the greatest records like he used to, you know, but he still makes some has moments that still shine. You know, and uh, I think Dylan does that right. uh, amazingly. And uh, and uh, you know, I think like Time Out of Mind is the best, my favorite Bob Dylan record. And um, I mean, as a whole album. Right. And uh, you know, and so I think there are ways of doing that. And you just kind of have to start realizing, you know what? Like, you know, we were part of uh, we were part of something at one time, but the what we become is bigger than that, you know, and more important than that. And uh, you know, once you're already at the top, it's just like you know what? You do a good job, and you're true to yourself, and you'll stay there. Right. If you want to, and that's kind of like what we want to do. I mean, I'll promise you this though: for the sake of success, never ever. Will we um, entertain the idea of uh, having somebody write for us? Uh, you know, the day that if anyone from our record company or management ever suggested that, um, it wouldn't just be like you know you're fired or uh, it, it would it would seriously be like you know what this band will never will cease to exist from this point on. You know, um, that will never ever happen. But I mean, I know people do that. They sell that. See, to me, that's a sellout. You know, I would sell one of my songs to, uh, you know, um, any car commercial in the world that paid me enough money. Mm-hmm. And I don't consider that a sellout. Right. I already wrote the song. <laughs> I wrote the song. It's like what it means to me, and it was like a moment that it was like a true uh, expression of what I felt. And uh, you know what? You, you want to put it on, on a commercial and and, and uh, you know uh, make. You know, 
cut it, do whatever you want to, fine. It doesn't change what I created. Right. But if 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 I'm trying to hold on to some kind of idea of of you know the, the top of the pops, you know, type of thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, stay on in the top ten for uh, you know weeks on end, have number one records time and time again at the age of like you know in in say like you know ten years when I'm you know in my forties. Right. And, and to do that, uh, are willing to let Glenn Ballard write songs for me. You know what? Like, like, fuck that. I don't want any part of that. You don't want to bring in Diane Warren. No. Never, ever happened, ever. Do you have uh, contemporaries, other bands of your generation that you feel a particular kinship with? Yeah, there's a lot, really. I mean, you know what? I think we came out at a time when, when uh, there, you know, there was a very exciting period in, in, in rock and roll and uh you know i mean everyone sort of go, growing up through the 80s i think you know bonded in the underground right you know and uh what was going on mostly above ground uh you know at least in, in the world of rock and roll was nothing that myself or my friends or my contemporaries were really a, a part of and uh you know but then again you know when when we first got a record deal and first came out that was like right when nevermind was just exploding and and uh and as our record first came out you know a few months later pearl jam then started to explode and uh and you know we were sort of like attached to that you know and then everyone knows about that story and, and lumped in with that and at the time you know you, you just like so badly want to be you know, it's like, you know, we knew who we were and we knew what we were about. And we wanted people to appreciate us like, uh, you know, like we appreciate ourselves and we and how we appreciated each other. And, and uh, to not be judged on your own merit when you're very young and uh, very insecure and, uh, you know, and, you know, you know, want to be appreciated. That, that's, that was difficult. And so I think we purposely, you know, did everything we could you know, musically and uh, and in every way, you know, uh, uh, to to move away from that kind of uh, connection. And but now, you know, looking back at at, at that time, um, you know, after five albums, you know, there there are there are a lot of of artists that still make records. A lot of them, you know, that are dead. A lot of them, uh, you know, that are on their way to dying. Who I who I really appreciate and. Uh, and looking back at a decade of rock and roll, I feel very, very proud and and content with being a part of a movement that you know was really important for rock and roll. You listen to a, a fair amount of new music, don't you? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, you know, a lot of old stuff and a lot of new stuff. Um, but you know what? I'm kind of like this. Like, I've as I've gotten a little older, I uh, I've sort of become um, less interested in on in what is like. Uh, you know, spur of the moment and what is like uh, incredibly new and incredibly, you know, because when you're younger, you always want to impress your friends by, you know, explaining to somebody, you know, about this new band that you discovered. And, uh, you know, now it's usually, I usually don't discover things like somebody, a friend of mine is also, you know, uh, another musician or something, or something like that, um, uh, you know, will, will turn me on to something and, you know, I'll really like it and I'll get into it and then I'll stay into it for a while. You know, that's kind of like how I got turned on to the Flaming Lips, and and you know I've been like a huge Flaming Lips fan, you know, ever since. You know, I mean, I think one of the most inspiring records for me in the last uh, probably the last five years was the Soft Bullet album that they made, the last one. Uh, that Superman song. Yeah, yeah, that song is it's the most beautiful song they ever wrote. Oh my God, no, I know, I just could listen to that song over and over. I, I again. do, I, I do a lot of times. Like if I'm on an airplane, I'll listen to it over and over and over and over again, and. 
I really would like. I really, Dean and I almost learned that at, just to perform it uh, live at, while we were in Europe and the UK uh, last week. Uh, we did some acoustic shows, but we uh, we had to learn some of our our own new material first, since we don't even know how to play some of our own new material. <laughs> but uh, that record just kills me, and uh, and you know, there's also um, th- that this band uh, they're starting to get well known here now. I'm sure you know that Ben Sigaros. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, I really love them, and it was like last spring I got turned on to them, and uh, Dean actually played it for me the first time. Someone sent us a CD while we were on the road, mm-hmm. and it's just kind of like one of those things. I knew nothing about them, and, you know, but you, when somebody sends you a CD and says, you should listen to this, it's like, you know, it's good to give it a listen, especially if it's from a friend, you know. And right. They, they probably have an idea what you might be into, and we stuck it in, the, you know, the, the CD player in the dressing room, and... and you know, it, it's sort of become part of the soundtrack of uh, of my life over the last year. No, that's a beautiful record. Yeah. You should check out this band, The Shins. Really? On Sub Pop. I just saw them play last night. They opened for the Red Hats Painters. Really? Yeah. And it's really nice. I think you'd like it. It's got, like, some kind of hint of, like, Beach Boysy kind of stuff. But it's that. kind of like if you crossed, like, a little bit of Build a Spill in there. Wow, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, you should check it out. You know what's also really good is is this band that Kenny Weinstein's been working with. The um, they're from New York City. The Strokes, yeah. Is that who you're talking about? What's that? The Strokes. Yes. No, they're fucking excellent. They are are really good. You know, he he came in the studio over over at Lavish uh, last summer when I was uh, I had just reformed the Campfire Girls mm-hmm. and uh, signed them to my label, and uh, so we were in the studio over my studio working on some tunes, and and Kenny came over, um, and he played that for me, and the the guys from the Campfire Girls were just besides themselves. They all of a sudden started rethinking all the guitars they had just laid down. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! You should hear the LP. Really, is it amazing? It's fucking amazing. I've only heard the demos. Well, if at the drive-in ever decide to like tour again soon, they should take the Strokes out with them. Oh, definitely. While I have you, let me ask you a couple of questions. We're we're doing this uh, elaborate thing where we're talking to a variety of of people, artists and actors and uh, policymakers about uh, drug policy in this country. So, if you don't mind, I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions about that. Do you think that uh, prison is an appropriate punishment for marijuana use? No, I don't think it's appropriate punishment for drug use. I mean, if you're a nonviolent uh, drug offender, I mean, you know, if you're going to hold, to, if you're a junkie, you know, or you're a crackhead or whatever, and and you you uh, you know you, you do, do an armed robbery, you know, and uh, and someone gets injured, or or someone even uh, you know has a uh, uh, a nervous breakdown. I have to spend, you know, a few weeks, um, you know, in, in the in the nut house, right. to recover from it. Then, you know, it's like it's not nonviolent anymore. And uh, and you know what? You can, you could have made a decision to go on Santa Monica Boulevard and suck cock. I mean, that's what I would do rather than hold the bank up. Right. I had to if I had no money. Right. So, um, you know, I, I kind of feel like nonviolent drug offenders should be. You know, it's like you don't throw people in prison because they've got. Um, you know, they suffer from, you know, bipolar disorder. Right. You know, or because they suffer from uh, personality disorder or, you know, or any of those mental deficiencies. You know, and and, uh, and that's 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 really, you know, it's, there's there are no difference, really. You know, it's just that the symptoms are a little bit different. And uh, I don't know. You know, it, got, it the whole thing goes kind of deep. I mean, and there are a lot of things, there are a lot of extensions to that, too. I mean, I think one of the worst problems with... Uh, 
drug offenders going to prison are the mandatory minimums, you know, because that's really where you see how, um, you know, how it's pointed towards uh, people of color and right. people that don't have money. Right. Uh, you know, there are people that are doing longer jail sentences for for drugs in, in you know, prisons in some states than there are for, uh, you know, people that have, you know, that have committed murder. It's crazy. So do you do you really have bipolar disorder? Yeah, I you know I've had it my whole life, but it, it wasn't like really diagnosed correctly until um, you know about two and a half three years ago, and uh, it was always um, misdiagnosed. Really? Uh, as like uh, when I was a young child, it, um, it was misdiagnosed as uh, you know hyperactivity. And right. Then it was ADD, and then it was you know OCD, AD, or whatever. You know what I mean? Then it was just depression, and uh, and you know I really just started taking medication or or trying medication um, while I was in my twenties, and uh, and you know and it was always depression medication, but that didn't do anything for me. It made me feel really anxious, and so. You know, at one point, I finally had a bunch of tests taken, hours and hours of tests, and blood and all this stuff, and, and um, they found that it was uh, bipolar disorder, manic depressive disorder, and, uh, and you know, the, so the medication I was prescribed was Depakote. Mm-hmm. It worked, but it, I didn't like the effects of it, and so I don't take it. Right, it makes it everything too even. Yeah, yeah, and you know what, that's a very, very um, bad place for an artist to be. You know, I don't have fear of writing songs without being under uh, the influence of narcotics or alcohol, but I do have an incredible fear of writing songs um, without being able to feel my uh, range of emotion. And the thing is, that the, the, the thing that's kind of sad is that those medicines they use for that, you know, have, uh, have like Depakote and, and then there's two others. Um, Tegretol mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 one that actually uh, Kurt wrote a song about uh, lithium. Those are ancient drugs. Yeah, they've been around forever. It's like, come on, man. You know, you know, look at all the technology they have with like computers and like, you know, cloning animals. You know, sending people, you know, things to Mars and stuff. You know, it's like. Come on, you got to be able to develop something that's a little bit more, you know, current, <laughs> right. modern than, than than those right. that they've been using since you know, like for half a century. But uh, anyway, well, listen, I better get going. Yes. Uh, I I got to try to figure out a way how to finish watching the final Laker game that I had sent to me because I was in Europe and take a nap and go to rehearsal. Sad, uh, sad that he's gone, and I feel so fortunate, honored, really to have been able to uh, have a conversation like that with such a great artist and, and great person. R.I.P. Scott Weiland. Um, I'm Jenny Ellis feeling emotional, but you know what? We're at the end of the episode. Perfect timing. <laughs> um, and thanks again to Caroline Polachek, um, who I think will be doing tour dates next year, so bookmark her website to stay in the loop on that. Episode 37 will feature an interview with Bat for Lashes' Natasha Khan. I love her to pieces. That's coming up in a few weeks. Subscribe if you haven't done that already. And remember, you can reach me with questions and feedback at Jenny LSQ. 